0: How do we understand the relation between God and the soul, God and the world? How can we express this mystery in terms which correspond to our deepest intuition and make it intelligible to rational understanding? And there are very subtle differences, you know, but that is where the real theological task is. Now well, the Hindu approached the mystery from the point of view of the inner experience, recognizing the imminent presence of God in the soul and the world, The Hebrew revelation came in the form of a manifestation of a transcendent God. The God of Israel is totally transcendent, separate from the world and humanity. He rules the world from above, He creates the world, He creates the human beings, and He may descend, He may speak to them and so on, but He always remains transcendent, remains above. And the word which describes the God of Israel is holy, holiness. And holiness means separate. God is holy because he is separate from the world. And a human being is holy when he is separated from the world. When you go to religion, dedicate your life, you become a holy person, you are separated from the world. Is the idea. And a gift which is offered in sacrifice is holy because it is separated from profane use. So holiness always bears that sense of separation. Thus the religion of Israel is based on a profound dualism. Whereas the Hindu is basically non-dual, Israel is basically dualistic. This extends to every level of being. Human beings are separate from the world in which they live. Israel is a holy nation, separate from all the nations of the world. The good are separated from the evil and have a different destiny. All this stems from the profound experience of Israel, from Moses and the prophets, of a transcendent God. And to some extent, you know, this transcendent God is a problem today. If you make God too transcendent, he loses touch with the world, you know. And for the Jew, that was a real problem. They didn't dare to pronounce his name, you know, in the time of Jesus. And even today, they won't write the name Yahweh. You have to make some substitute for it. So God becomes so sacred and so far beyond that the danger is, as I say, you kind of lose touch. That is why Jesus brought it all down to Abba, Father, you see, in a very intimate relationship of Son to the Father. So that is the um, Hebrew version. And Islam is even further, you know, you see, the Allah, the Koran, is totally transcendent. That's the great thing in Islam, you know, no one can be associated with God. That is why they reject the sonship of Christ, you know. Again and again in the Quran it says, he can have no son. And for the, for the Muslim that is blasphemy, you see, to suggest anyone can be associated with God. He's the absolute transcendent one. No human being can ever be associated with him. And they say that our scriptures have all been distorted, you see. that. Uh, that the Koran is the authentic word of God and the Bible has been corrupted by Christians. So it makes it very difficult to have a dialogue. But when we come against the Sufis, you see, the Muslim mystics, who are the most powerful influence, I think, in Islam, then we meet on common ground, and then the, in, the dialogue can be wonderful, you see, but they are strictly Orthodox Muslims, it's very, very difficult. And Islam means surrender, to surrender to God. And the relation of the Muslim to God is that of a slave, under a slave of God. And your duty is obedience. It's a wonderful religion, but it's a limited one too, you know. But Jesus said, I've not called you servants, I've called you friends, you see. And he made it a basis of love. That is a further stage of religion, really. So this transcendent God of Jewish tradition has chosen Israel from all the nations of the world to proclaim this message and to be a light to other nations. And that is the call of Judaism, because they have suffered through it from all through their history, you see. They still have the belief that God has revealed himself to them alone. Again and again in the Old Testament it says, I am the first and the last, beside me there is no God who is like me see, it's a total separation of the God of Israel from all other gods, and Israel was really based on that. And Islam has the same thing, you see. Allah is alone the one God, and Quran is the one supreme revelation. And it's difficult for them to go beyond it, you see, that is their problem. So Isaiah says, it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you a light to the nations. And Israel had this beef; it has a calling to be a light to the nations. And of course, in our understanding, Jesus came to fulfill this call of Israel, but he opened it up, you see, to the rest of the world in a totally new way. This is the claim of Israel, causes so many problems in the world today. Both Jews and Muslims claim to have a unique revelation and reject all other religions. How can we reconcile this claim of absolute transcendence with the Hindu and Buddhist experience of an imminent presence of the sacred in the depths of the human soul and in the universe around us? The Hindu and the Buddhist, in their meditation, go beyond all outer appearances and experience the inner reality of the self, the spirit, which is beyond all name and form, so that the Buddhist will not speak of God or even of the soul. That's a great problem for many people. They say, Buddhists don't believe in God, they don't even believe in a soul, they can't have any religion at all. But it's simply a difference of outlook, of language, of concept behind this denial of a personal God and an individual soul is a profound intuitive grasp of the hidden mystery behind God, behind the world. You see, The Buddha didn't want to name it. He didn't deny it, actually, but he wouldn't name it. And he simply called it nirvana, and that means blowing out. It's the extinction of all these dualities, all these opposites. When you get beyond, you get this bliss. Out of this very negative view of the Buddha, all his suffering, all his passing, all his unreal, comes this profound sense of joy. If you read the Dhammapada, it's a great uh, classic really of buddhism It's in joy we live again and again, they say, this joy which comes when you get beyond the opposites and beyond the conflicts and realize the mysterious unity behind it all. So, The Buddhist has a profound religion, there's no doubt, you see, but it's not our way of putting things, that's the difference. It's an experience of absolute oneness. God, the soul and the universe experience as a total unity in which no differences appear. It doesn't say there are no differences, they don't appear. This has been the experience of countless saints and sages from the earliest time to the present day, and to many people today, it has come as a profound revelation of the ultimate meaning of life. Whether it is through yoga, or Zen, or Vipassana, this enlightenment is seen as a final revelation of absolute truth. Innumerable people in America today, they've rejected Christianity, this personal God, and this dualism, good and evil, and so on, and they feel that in Buddhism they get the answer to all their problems, they get that enlightenment. It's not the final truth, but they found something, you know. And we have to recognize, you see, you can't just dismiss it. There is a profound experience they have simply in search of this truth, you see, which they believe they can find there. So we all have to face that reality in our lives. A Christian cannot ignore this testimony of traditions which go back over 2,000 years and which have shown themselves capable of transforming the lives of people all over the world today. So there are two hemispheres in a sense, the transcendent God above everybody and everything, and ruling the world from above, and the imminent presence of God in nature and the soul, and giving the root and ground of our own being. So this is our problem in the world, really, you see, and it comes to fighting after a time. The point is, how can we reconcile these two opposite views, you see, the transcendent, the imminence, can we in meditation reach the point where these opposite ideals are reconciled? As long as we remain on the rational level of conceptual thought, there is no real answer, the transcendence, the immanence. But when we enter into meditation and go to the source, the secret place of the heart, then I think an answer can be found. So I think we're challenged today, you see, to find in our own self, in our own heart, the reconciliation of these opposites. And by the way, you know, that is one of the most profound intuitions today, the need for reconciliation of opposites. We always tend to think, well, we're all dualistic, that opposite can't be reconciled. Black and white are opposite, you see, and good and evil are opposite, and truth and error are opposite, and mind and matter are opposite. You have all these opposites and you keep them separate. But the deeper intuition is that behind all opposites there is a movement of interrelationship. And you get it in the Chinese, you know, this wonderful sense of yin and the yang, you know. The the whole emblem of of Taoism is this, how the two sides are always interrelating with one another. Tao Te Ching, great Chinese classic, which has this wonderful view, you know, of the unity of all things in their opposites, how the opposites unite. And I think, in a deep sense, you know, Jesus came to reconcile these opposites. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, it seems, the great book of reconciliation. So this is our task, how in meditation to reconcile the transcendence and the immanence and the, the opposite
1: views. Aum che vadita vaditamastu ma vidvishavahai om shanti shanti shanti
2: The
0: understanding of the Gospels today is now generally accepted that there are three periods the first, is the first thirty years, Jesus was living with his disciples in Palestine, speaking Aramaic, living as a Jew, and suffering, and rising again, and so on. Then from 30 to 60 A.D., the story of Jesus and his teaching was handed on through the churches, you see. We know no word of Jesus which he actually spoke. The story and the teaching came down through the churches in different versions. you see, they had their different versions of the story their different versions of the teaching. First it was in Aramaic, but as it spread through the Greek world, it was translated into Greek. So between 30 and 60 A.D. the gospel message was being translated in the different churches into Greek. Then, between 60 and 90, our Gospels were written, you see. Gospel writers came and drew on these sources. They were an oral tradition coming down, there may have even been some writing, but mainly an oral tradition had come down through the churches, and they put it into writing, particularly when the apostles were passing away, you see, by 60 AD, and the apostles were passing away. So it's at that later period that the need for a written record, before that they would witness to it, but now a written (coughs) record is needed, and so our Gospels came into being. And so we have to read our Gospels critically, you see. They're not simply the words of Jesus, it's not simply the story of Jesus, It's the words of the story have come down through witnesses, through the church, and we can believe the Holy Spirit was guiding the movement. But still, the Gospels are are very different, and there are many conflicting elements in them which we have to recognize. And above all, St. John's Gospel was almost certainly written about 90 A.D. And it's a profound reflection on the whole mystery of Christ, really. There's no doubt, I think, that the, 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 the story and the teaching had come down through probably a particular group of churches, the Johannine community, they call it. But as yes, the, the writer was interpreting in the light of his own profound experience. So it draws out of the Gospel story and the teaching the depths of Jesus' teaching. I think we come nearer to the heart of Christ in St. John's Gospel. It's so profound, really. It was a tremendous grace that, that that teaching could be transmitted in that way. So I always feel that here, you see, when Jesus prays, that they may be one as thou in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, we're being asked to enter into the hidden mystery of the Godhead, to share Jesus' own knowledge of God and love of God. No distinction, that but, but to share in and through and with him, in the knowledge of the Father. And that is the Christian revelation, you see. It's not a, one God up there and a servant down below or something like that. It's that the human being drawn into the hidden mystery of the Godhead, sharing in the love and the knowledge which is the Godhead.
1: Godhead is
0: a communion of knowledge and love, you see, and we're being drawn into that, and that's our calling. And that is why, as I say, you know, meditation is so important, because sacramental rites are wonderful and necessary, and the Mass, of course, is central, but you're still all external signs all the time, you see. You've got churches, and you've got candles, and crucifixes, and vestments, and bread, and wine, all these things are external, you see, and the mystery is coming through these signs. But when we get beyond all the outer appearances and enter into the silence, then we can encounter the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, and be in total communion, you see, in total communion in the heart, and that is what we see. This is a communion with God in Christ which is non-dual. We're no longer two. We're no longer two. We are one. But not simply one without any distinction. One in relationship. And you see, we say the persons of the Trinity are subsistent relationships. It would mean it's a dynamism. Love is a dynamism, you see. It's not a solitary thing, obviously. There are always two, and the two commune with each other, penetrate into each other, become one with each other, and that is a non-dual relationship, a mystery. You can't express it in words, practically. But that is where the Gospel is leading us, to this non-dual mystery. A communion of love, where each is in the other and knows no other, in a mystery of self-transcendence, since in love the two become one, yet one is not lost in the other. That's the mystery of love, isn't it? You see, the two become one, and yet become more yourself when you're fulfilled in love, you see. So love itself is a mystery, it's not something easy to put into words. This is the ultimate Christian experience of God, And it is this that our Christian meditation must lead us. And that's why I say, I feel God is calling us. We're not doing it of ourselves, you know. God is calling us to this way of meditation, to this experience of God in the hidden mystery of the heart. This is the call of humanity today, you see. People are being drawn into this all over the world. Some are going into Hinduism and Buddhism in search of this experience, you see. That's why they go, and others to Sufism and so on. But, uh, and often the Christian mystery is not given them, you know, in a way that is meaningful. They feel Christianity is an external religion, all right for ordinary people, <laughs> but not sufficient for those who are really suck God. And we have to witness to the fact that there is a Christian mystery which can be experienced in the depth of the soul, and which answers the deepest need of our human nature, you see. That is really what we see. And so that's the the challenge, to witness to this gift of God in meditation, in contemplative prayer, through the mantra that John Main found the way for us all.
1: Purnamada, purna purnat, Purnamudhacchate, Purnasya, purnavadaya, Purnamivavasisya te. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace, peace, peace.
0: meditation groups is introducing a new way of life in the church and for humanity as a whole. Father John, by introducing the way of meditation with a mantra, renewed an ancient tradition of contemplative prayer in the Benedictine order. He then extended this way of meditation and contemplative life to the lay people. This tradition of meditation derives from the Fathers of the Desert, and has passed on by Cassian to St. Benedict. It has now spread throughout the world. It has its roots in the tradition of ancient India, and has become a typical method of prayer in the Oriental tradition. It is found in fact not only in Hinduism and Buddhism, but also among the Sufis in Islam and the Hasidic movement in Judaism. What is the future of contemplative life based on this tradition in the church and in the world? In the first place, I think we must recognize that the Christian tradition cannot stand alone. We are being challenged today to see our religion in the context of other religions of the world. In particular, this way of meditation is found in all the great religions and contemplative life must be seen as a calling for humanity today. We are moving out of a materialist civilization centered on science and technology into a new age in which people all over the world are consciously turning to a spiritual path, seeking to integrate their lives by bringing everything into the inner center of the heart and finding the meaning of life, not in the external world, but in the inner reality of which the external world is a reflection. It is in the context of this new world that we have to see the place of contemplative life in the church, and the place of oblate communities in fostering this way of life. I keep coming back to the view that The external world is a reflection, as in a mirror, of an interior world. And as you know, that is the view of modern physics, that when we go beneath the outward appearances, first of all of external bodies, and then to atoms and protons, electrons, we eventually come simply to a field of energies. So we have to recognize we are ourselves a field of energy, They are functioning within the vast field of energies in the universe. And we project this three-dimensional world around us through our senses and through our minds. And that three-dimensional world is essentially transitory. It's an, an expression of this vast mystery of energy in the universe, which we create, and in which we live, and which we have to transcend. We are always mistaking the outer phenomena the appearances of the world and space and time for the reality. And we're slowly learning that all this is passing away. And these are the great insights, you see, of India, particularly of the Buddha. See, the Buddha, I think, had the most profound insight into the nature of the universe of any human being, really that he saw, as you know, through the whole world of appearances, of the senses, he saw it's all passing away. All is passing. All is sorrow, in the sense of unsatisfactory, with giving no final satisfaction, you see. And thirdly, all is unreal, without substance, without any real base to it. So the whole world in which we live, the sense world, is a world of phenomena, of appearances. But these appearances reflect the eternal reality. So we're living in a world of passing phenomena, everything is changing all the time, and all is in flux and conflict, as in a mirror or in a lake of water, if you like. It's reflecting the divine reality which is everywhere in everything, reflected in this phenomena of the senses. You see, that is the world in which we live. And at the moment of death, we pass beyond the flux of phenomena and the body as we know it, and enter into the reality. It's a little as though we're watching a TV screen, you see, and we see all the events going on, and we think it's all happening there. But it's not happening there, it's happening somewhere beyond, and we're seeing the representation of it. So the whole physical world is a representation, a manifestation of an unseen reality. And every religious tradition, you know, has normally a word for this unseen reality. <coughs> In India, of course, we have Brahman always. That was exactly they saw, behind all the phenomena, the one everlasting Brahman. Or if you think of the human being, behind the body, the soul, the one atman, the one self. Then the Buddha, of course, called it nirvana. When all these phenomena pass away, you go beyond them all, there is this this blowing out of all appearances, all change and becoming, and the eternal reality and then in the later tradition, they call it sunyata, the void. When everything, a phenomenon has been emptied, then you have the void, which is the fullness. Then of course in China you have the Tao. You see, Confucius and the more traditional had their rituals and their organized social, political life. And Lao Tzu saw behind all this, this Tao, this rhythm of the universe, this, marvelous order which is behind everything and which can't be seen. He always uses the beautiful illustration, you know, of emptiness. Do you know the <clears throat> saying, we make spokes and a wheel in order to drive a chariot and so on, but it's the empty space in the hub which enables the wheel to go around and we make pots of clay, but it's the empty space in the pot which makes it useful. And we build houses of bricks and mortar and wood and stone, but it's the empty spaces in the doors and windows that make the house habitable. So the emptiness, you see, is just as important as the, as the fullness, as we see it. So Lao Tzu has this insight. in the. Um, Muslim tradition. is extremely interesting, you know, in the Sufis, particularly Ibn al-Arabi. He says, behind Allah, God, and the Quran, and all the teaching, is al-Haq, the reality. The one reality behind all these projections of God and everything else. And in Judaism, it's so interesting, in the Kabbalah, in the 12th or 13th century, they spoke of Ein Sof. The infinite. And behind Yahweh and the Lord and the prophets and everything is Ain's so, the reality. And we're all discovering behind all the projections of the physical world, all the projections of the psychological world, and all the projections of religion is the reality. Karl Rana, rather beautiful phrase, call it the holy mystery. It's the mystery beyond everything. And that is our religious search. Uh, We need a physical world around us and so on. We need the symbols of religion, but we have to go beyond them to the reality always. And that is our calling.
1: PURNAVADAYA Purnameva MEVA VASISYATE OM SHANTI 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 Peace, peace, peace.
2: In considering
0: the future of contemplative life in the Church, Compare the present state of the world with that of the world in which Christianity was born. Jesus was born into a world in which there was an eager expectation of the beginning of a new age. Unfortunately, in America today, Christians are terribly afraid of the new age. And anything like meditation or yoga is a sign of the new age (laughs) and must be rejected. But Jesus was living at the beginning of a new age. And in Israel, people were looking for the coming of the Messiah, who would bring to an end the present world and inaugurate the kingdom of God. It was in response to this that Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. And clearly, he had the full consciousness that he was inaugurating a new age in this world. Many people expected the new age to come with the destruction of the Roman Empire and the establishment of the kingdom, the Messiah, in Israel. Our book of Revelation is something rather in that context. But that was not Jesus' view. He saw that the new age could not be a continuation of this present world in space and time. He had to die to this world and everything in it. Only then could the new age begin, and this was what took place at the resurrection. He died to the whole of this world of appearances, the whole of the religious world of Judaism and so on, and inaugurated the new age of the resurrection. The resurrection does not consist merely in the appearance of Jesus to his disciples after his death. Many people think, you know, these appearances in Galilee and Jerusalem and so on are the resurrection. But they're simply appearances to to confirm the faith of the disciples. And the real resurrection is the passing beyond the world altogether. The resurrection was Jesus' passage from this world to the Father. It was not an event in space and time but the passage beyond space and time to the eternal, to the reality. Jesus passed into the reality, you see, al haq And it is into that world, beyond time and space, which is the reality, that Jesus entered at the resurrection. It is into that world that we are invited to enter by contemplation. And we don't have to wait for physical death, you know. You have to die, but you can die now and enter now into that eternal world. We have to go beyond the outer appearance of the senses and beyond the inner concepts of the mind. They're just as dangerous, the scientific mind. And open ourselves to the reality of Christ within, the Christ of the resurrection. With Jesus in the resurrection, a new age has dawned. The real world, which he called the kingdom of God, was revealed and humanity was called to enter into this kingdom, to pass beyond space and time into the eternal reality. And Jesus always spoke, you know, of the kingdom in this way. He used all these parables, you know, to try to point to it. You cannot see what is the kingdom of God. It's always the mystery to which you can point, and nothing more. And Jesus was pointing us all the time to that transcendent reality. He himself, he had to go through death in order to enter into the new world, you see, the world of the kingdom of God. And we have to go through death with him, you see, it's the only way. This is a challenge which faces the world today. We're passing out of one world, the world of western domination, and Western culture, if you like, with all its values, and entering a new age in which the logical, rational mind of Greek philosophy and Roman law, and of the economic and political forms of this world will pass away. The whole of our world its a patriarchal culture, as women today are realizing, you see. It's extraordinary, the domination of the male, rational, scientific mind, you see. And that world is passing away at this present moment. Again, with Roman law and then the whole legal system, parliamentary system, all these are products of this Western mind. All these structures and now, as we can see in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, they are beginning to collapse, you see. And something new is emerging. Nobody knows exactly what form it's going to take, and of course it's a moment of form or of birth, but it's something is going to take place. We're waiting till all these forms and structures pass away, and we shall see the whole universe of space and time, and the whole of humanity, redeemed by Christ, standing in the fullness of reality. See, we're in this world of appearances, and we're waiting until the appearances pass and we see the reality behind them. That is the coming of the kingdom of God, you see, passing into reality. For Christ is that fullness of which it is said, in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. In Jesus the fullness of the Godhead, of the unutterable mystery, was present, you see. And again it is said, the church is the fullness, the pleroma of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the fullness in which that divine reality becomes present in history and in time. And the church and we ourselves are part of that pleroma, that fullness, you see, in which God is revealing himself, becoming present to humanity in us. So, it may seem a lot to suggest that a half hour of meditation, morning and evening, can open the mind to such a vision. But it was just Father John's conviction that this is possible, not only for monks, but for everyone. This is the call of the church and of humanity today. A new age is dawning, as it was in the time of Christ, and as it is in a sense at all times. You know, the new age is always coming. The kingdom of God is always at hand, you see, but in very various stages. Sometimes it comes to a critical moment, did with the time of Christ. And as I think it's coming today, you know, this is a critical moment in human history we're reaching today. The resurrection is a timeless event. It is the passage from the old into the new, and Jesus passed, you see, from the whole of this world of space and time into the eternal reality, so that he's now wholly present in space and time, you see. Once you get beyond the limited horizon of space and time, as he does in the resurrection, you become totally present to all space and time. God is present everywhere in everything. I sometimes illustrate it that time is like this, you see, there's the beginning and there's the middle, where we are, there's the end, and you're going along here. And eternity does not consist in going on and on and on like that. Eternity is there, and it's present equally at the beginning and the middle and the end. And when you die, you don't simply go on to another life or something, you pass beyond into the eternal reality, which you are, into your real being this new age is dawning. It is a passage from the old into the new. As St. Paul wrote in the letter to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away, everything has become new. And that happened in the time of the New Testament, and it's happening today, it's always happening. The old is always passing away, and the new is always coming into birth, you see. But we can be insensitive. we go on clinging to the old, or thinking this is it, and then we stop the movement of, of, of creation. Or we can allow things to grow and to move and enter into the new creation, and that's what we're challenged to do. The seer of the Apocalypse wrote, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, this is a new creation, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That is the whole of this temporal spatial structure which we're building up. All that is going to pass away, you see. And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And that is the promise, you see. The whole of this world is going to pass away, The new creation is always there, it's eternal, and it's reflecting itself in time. But when the time passes away, then the eternal becomes manifest.
1: Pour na sia, pour na Shanti Shanti. pour
2: The church, which is undergoing a
0: crisis, greater perhaps than ever before. The Second Vatican Council for the Catholic Church was a tremendous breakthrough, you know. It got beyond all those rigid systems. The Roman Curia, you know, had prepared a whole lot of schemata. They didn't want all these bishops there at all, and they wanted to manage the whole thing, so they had all these schemata prepared on the church and on the scriptures and tradition and sacraments and priesthood, all these things. And one after another, they were simply thrown out by the bishops. It was amazing. And the bishops were listening to the theologians. Every bishop brought a civil cool theologian with him, Karl Rahner and Yves Congar, and people like that. And they advised the bishops, and the total revolution took place in the Catholic Church, you know. We haven't realized it yet, but, but it's there, actually, all the time. It opened our hearts to a new vision of the church, really, you see, which we're still trying to live with. Uh, that was the beginning, but you see, many people now think that was the end. It's the new church, It's gone. now we've done everything. But most of us think that, on the contrary, it's a beginning. It's still a vast evolution that has to take place. Uh, I would say in the next ten years, you know, a more sort of fundamental changes will take place. And we have to see the Holy Spirit is working in the world, in the church, in our lives, transforming us day by day. And if we respond to it, then the new age comes about. The church was originally a community of the Spirit. People who receive the gift of the Spirit, of which contemplation is a type, and dedicate their lives to prayer. And you notice the apostles, remember, at that time, in Acts of the Apostles, they appointed deacons, they called them, to serve tables. We ourselves will give us, to the the preaching of the word and the prayer. There are two things, you see, the preaching and the prayer. And the prayer comes first. It's no good preaching if you're not praying. If you haven't got Christ within, you cannot give him to others. can put words and theories about, but that's not the gospel, you see. It's only when you have the gospel within you, the Christ within, that you can communicate it to others. so this is fundamental and central, you see, to all our Christian faith. Contemplation is a prayer of union, as Teresa describes it, it's union with God in the Spirit, a point of union between the human spirit and the Spirit of God. Abhishek Ananda said, I remember, to preach the Gospel primarily is not to communicate a lot of words, it's to communicate the Holy Spirit. Unless your words come from the Spirit within, they're not words of life, you see, which communicate the Gospel. And so always you come back to contemplation, union with God at the heart of Christian life and faith and love, everything is in that, you see. So that the gospel is primarily not a word to be preached, but a spirit to be communicated. I think we brought that out in our meditation group. You're not preaching, you see, you're not giving a word, but you're sharing the gift of the Spirit. Mind you, the word is necessary, we have to prepare ourselves and meditate and have the Eucharist and so on. These are necessary means, but the end is this experience of God in the Spirit. Jesus did not form a lot of separate orders in the church, priests and bishops and so on. They came in later and this part of the organization of the church and very natural and necessary and so on. But he himself did not form uh, orders like that. He simply opened his disciples to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The one thing he left behind him was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all the early disciples were people who had attached themselves to Jesus in a free and spontaneous way, surrendered their lives, Go leave what you have and come follow me, and open themselves to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the early church was this church of the Holy Spirit, and that is the original church, call it the eschatological church, the church for the end of time, you see. And this is the church. And then naturally and normally as it went into the Roman Empire and so on, it had to organize itself, and all these orders, sacraments and ministries and so on grew, and they're natural and normal and have to be accepted, and we have to deal with them now. Even now we try to organize the meditation groups. You have to have some organization for that. But behind it all is this experience of God in the Spirit. This affects the question of the sacramental order, you see there are two orders in the church. There's the spiritual order, which we're thinking of now, a contemplative order, where God is present in himself without any sign. You see, in meditation, in contemplation, there's no word, no sign. You go beyond the words and the sign, and the divine presence makes itself felt, you see. That is the essence of meditation of contemplation. But when we come to sacraments, and therefore all our normal needs, We need the divine presence through signs. And all the sacraments are signs in which the divine reality is present. In baptism we take water as a sign of cleansing, also a sign of dying, rising again. And we believe that under those signs, the sign of the water, the divine presence, the Holy Spirit is present to us through that sign, you see. And then with the Eucharist we take bread and wine. And we say that under those signs of bread and wine, Christ himself, the divine reality, is rarely present under those signs. It's a presence under a sign. That is a sacrament, you see. But he can be present without the sign. You can have the sign without the presence. If you have bread and wine without any real faith, then you just have bread and wine. But faith opens you up to the presence under the sign. So we need to distinguish the sacramental order, with all its values, from the spiritual order, where Christ is present in the Spirit. And in meditation we try to enter into the presence of Christ in the Spirit, not under signs anymore. And don't let us ever forget, you see, that Christ within is the Christ of the Resurrection. The Christ in the Eucharist is the Christ of the Resurrection, you know. Some people don't quite realize that. And Jesus said, it is expedient for you that I go from you, for if I will not go, the Spirit will not come. Jesus departs in the flesh to become present in the Spirit. And in contemplation, we encounter not Christ in the flesh, but Christ in the Spirit, the reality. Christ is present to each one of us in the depths of the soul, beyond the mind and the senses. And the call of the church today is to transcend the limits of the institutional structures and open itself to the presence of the Spirit in the church and in every Christian. To see all sacraments belong to the world of signs, you see. A sacrament is a sign in which the reality is present. The bread and the wine are signs, and the reality of Christ is present under those signs. But it's a mode of present under a sign. all sacraments are modes of the presence of the divine reality under spatial temporal signs. The church grew up in the Roman Empire and developed all its structures of sacrament, doctrine, and canon law based on the cultural inheritance of the Roman Empire. But these structures are now growing obsolete. You see, we've lived for 1900 years almost in these structures of the Greco-Roman world and it's becoming clear that they emerged in the second century. In the first century, in the New Testament, these structures were latent, if you like, but they would not yet emerged. It's only from the second century that sacraments and dogmas and uh, priesthood and bishop and all these structures of the church emerged. Uh, We can say it's a movement of the Holy Spirit growing out of it, But it emerges in the second century, and it's gone on to the present day, evolving all the elaborate structures, you see, of the hierarchy, of the sacraments, of the doctrine, and of canon law. It's all an erection which has grown up out of the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus ultimately, but expressed in historical cultural terms, you see, and a particular historical culture. As long as we remain in this world, We need structures of doctrine and discipline to guide us on our way. But we have always to be looking beyond the structures, beyond sacraments and doctrines to the reality which they represent. Sacraments and doctrines represent, make present in human terms, the transcendent reality, you see, which cannot properly be expressed in human terms. The church is the sacrament of Christ. Sign of the real presence of Christ, you see, in the Spirit. As Christ is a sacrament of God, Christ is a sign of the real presence of God in humanity. The sign on earth of the eternal reality. We've got to go beyond all signs, whether of doctrine or sacrament, to the reality which they represent. To repeat, the whole of this world of the senses And the world created by the scientific mind is an appearance, a reflection as in a mirror. And the whole world of religion, with its doctrines and rituals, is a symbol, a sign under the which the divine reality appears to us. It's really there, you see. That God is present in the whole creation, in everything, present in you and me, but present under the signs of the sense phenomena, you see, of our bodies and our souls. And same with all religion, God is present in ritual and doctrine and law, but there are signs of a present which transcends them. And we have to go through the signs always to the reality. And idolatry consists in worshipping the signs, you see. You can stop at the sign and that's what an idol is, you see. And interesting, you know, the Hebrew prophets were always denouncing the idols of the people. Some signs are very imperfect, some are better. None is adequate. No sign is adequate to the reality, you see. The whole world of nature is an imperfect manifestation of God.
1: Sahana vavatu, Sahana vunaktu, Sahaviryam karavavahai, Tejasvinavaditamastu, Mavidvishavahai, Aum Shanti, Shanti, Shanti.
0: From an ecumenical point of view, the hope of the future is not so much in the union of the churches on a sacramental and doctrinal level. I doubt whether we'll ever reach it, you know, there are so many differences of outlook and sacraments and doctrine, but to recognize the unity which already exists in the Spirit. Every Christian baptized receives the Holy Spirit. And in that gift of the Spirit, we're all one already. We divide with our rituals and doctrines, but the Holy Spirit is given to every Christian, and we must add, is given to every human being. See, every human being is created in the image of God, and that image is the presence of the Spirit of God. At that point of the Spirit, we are already one. And the ecumenical movement is to recognize this communion in the Spirit, which we already share, and which can grow, and we can expand it to other areas. It's going to take a long time to change the doctrines and rituals and so on, but we can already now recognize each one of us were one in the Spirit. And Paul has a beautiful phrase, no one can say Jesus is the Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You cannot say Jesus is the Lord in a genuine way, meaning, or believe in Jesus as the Lord, except in the Holy Spirit, and that is what we all share together. So perhaps that gives us some kind of ecumenical vision of the future and of our place in it. You see, I think it's very important that God has brought us together and taught us his way of meditation, shown us a way of being the church in a new way, in a sense. you see, Being the church in this way of contemplative prayer. Is which is i would feel is the great need of the church and the world
2: today
1: sahana vavatu sahana karavavahai Tejasvina vadita mastu ma vaditamastu hai om shanti shanti shanti